Hi, it's Ashley, and I am so glad you dropped by the Kick-Ash Live podcast, because today I get to introduce you to someone really special to me. His name is John Crittenden, and buckle up, Buttercup, his story is incredible. John is a friend, a confidant. He is the person I go to when I need a complete no BS answer. He approaches it with kindness, but he does not sugarcoat it for me. He talks straight, which is a rare gift in a person. In February, John passed seven years recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's often asked to speak at local AA meetings to share his story. A little while back, he sent me a recording of one of his talks, and there was something so poignant, so powerful, so real about his story that it made me really want to share it here. So in the first half of this podcast, we share a clip of John's talk to the AA meeting that night. It covers what it was like for him, what happened. And then together, John and I cover the healing that took place not only in him, but with his family and how he rebuilt trust in a world where really neither parents nor son had previously given one another a whole lot of reason to trust. And I think about this a lot because I find that the parent-child relationship is more than any other relationship one of continual breaking down of trust and rebuilding of trust, both by the parent and the child. It's the most intricate relationship. It's truly beautiful, but often also truly painful, as I'm sure you full well know. John talks about how he started to pay attention to other stories in recovery, and he talks about the big book I looked it up. It's a book that encompasses Alcoholics Anonymous history, as well as stories of recovering alcoholics who have found sobriety. And in the big book, John found voices he could relate to. He calls them story arcs. Story arcs became evident to him from rock bottom to healing, to fellowship, to service. And in the framework of those story arcs, he created his own. And, you know, when he said that, I thought, this is precisely why I feel so called to share other stories on this podcast, because stories are healing. Stories provide a frame of reference. Even when we think we have not even a single thing in common, it turns out that really we do. When we give others the grace of listening, when we search for a common thread, we find ourselves in others' stories. Okay, unpopular opinion perhaps, but I don't love this trend of quote trigger warnings. That is like a heads up that something we're about to say is potentially distressing. Like I want to go gently with others of course, that's my nature. But I also want us to be resilient and ready to face hard things, to have hard conversations. I want us to be strong enough to hold space for one another. And really, 
to be willing to feel some of our own pain rise up when we listen to one another's stories, to be independent enough to turn the script off when we need to from our own judgment to press pause. Nonetheless, I'm going to tell you this is not a story for children. John's story includes alcohol, drugs, self-harm, and porn, among other things. And now he tells all of this with a sense of humor and lightness. His ability to deal with hard truths through humor is one of the many reasons I love him. But what John shares here, I'm going to tell you it's real, it's raw, it's hard stuff. But isn't that the stuff of life, really? A little side note, John mentions a mural he painted at my workplace, casseroles. To avoid confusion here, yes, I am an attorney. I do law for a living. I help entrepreneurs protect their businesses. But sometimes, also, I work at a little bodega, a special little neighborhood place in walking distance from my home because I need to be with people. I need to connect in a very real normal, tangible, let me ring that up for you kind of way. This work from home culture is terrific for many reasons. But at some point, I was completely wilting behind the screens of multiple laptops. So sometimes I work at casseroles. Isn't life fun? (laughs) Okay, let's dive into John's story. At the end, I will summarize, as always, a list of takeaways. Just know that there are some great ones. John is a real treasure. He's one of the best people I know. So here we go. John, thank you for sitting down with me today. You are such a dear friend and you're somebody that I met in spin class years ago. And I was headed to Europe. Do you remember this? Yeah. And we were on bikes at the front of the class. There go the dogs. It's going to happen. And I was like, I've got to leave town and I don't know what to do with Apollo. And you said, well, I watch dogs. Yeah. And you came and you took care of my dog. And we've been doing life together ever since. And I have this sense that we're going to be doing life together for like a, a really long time. I hope forever. Like, you mean a lot to me. Thanks. Yeah. So, but you're fascinating to me because you are not just a dog walker. You're an artist. You've been in recovery for seven years. You sometimes serve as Manny yes. to my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Like you do so many things. Well, I just ran a marathon. I know this. Yeah. That's my most yes. recent accomplishment. Yes. I think that like the dog walking and manning go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I think that's just me, uh, the like household help that I provide my clients. (laughs) And um, yeah, I think as an artist, I'm also trying to like branch out from just like painting on canvases and Mm -hmm. doing commission work for people. Because recently I was at uh, actually your workplace, casseroles, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, painting a mural outside and then just like painting accent walls for them. And so even my new business card just says painting 
with like a really large paintbrush, like trying to imply that I do hang walls. It also says graffiti. Yes, it does say graffiti too, but that's because I really wanted to like really leave the door open (laughs) (laughs) for interpretation. Like, does this man do street art or does he just do spray paint or is he a vandal for hire? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to be a vandal for hire? Um, if someone reaches out to me about that, I would probably say yes, because I try to say yes to most job offers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So one of the things I want to do is you sent me the talk that you did to your AA group, right? You've been in recovery for seven years and I listened to this recording and I- I've known you for a while. In fact, you lived with us at one point when there was mold in your apartment. You sent me yeah. a text and you're like, I've moved into the kid's loft. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there were things about your story that I'd never heard. And it's an incredible journey. And so I want to play a clip of that. And then we're going to pick up at about the time that you end up in Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we're going to press pause. We're going to play that. And then we're going to come back and... Um, and pick up in Atlanta. Awesome. Okay. Hi, my name is John. I'm an alcoholic. Um, My sobriety date is February 9th, 2016. I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. I have a sponsee. And um, I don't know if my sponsor or sponsor has a sponsor, but I like to keep it simple. So I was born in Lexington, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston. And for you history buffs, it's uh, the birthplace of the Revolutionary War. Our town did this reenactment every year where um, all the American soldiers lined up and Paul Revere rode through and then the British soldiers came and they just slaughtered all the Americans. Um, And the end of it is that everybody would come screaming out of their houses, crying over their dead loved ones. And then I guess like the reenactment went to Concord and then you could watch us win a battle. But since I was from Lexington, I never went to that one. But uh, yeah, I, uh, my parents are still married, we're Catholic. And um, my mom and dad met at Harvard and uh, Bill Clinton wrote my mother's Harvard recommendation letter um, because she was his intern. And, um, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> I have two older brothers in my home, uh, I did a lot of the normal, like, manly, masculine things. Like, I played every sport. And um, like any um, young, effeminate man, I steadily quit every single one of them over time. Um, I quit baseball and then hockey and then basketball and then soccer. And um, by the time I'd gotten to high school, I decided what I really wanted to do was drink. And I started getting in trouble. I would get suspended from school. I would flunk out of classes. And um, I remember my first drink was actually at my first communion when I was eight years old. And I just remember going up to, uh, we call it a Eucharistic minister, and she handed me the wine. And this is supposed to be Jesus's blood. And I just started chugging it. Everyone in my family told me that I wouldn't like the taste of it. So I was determined to taste it and like it. So maybe I just started off on the wrong foot. And um, the first time I blacked out from drinking, I was 14 years old. It was my mother's birthday party. And um, I started puking red wine everywhere. And my brother found me and he freaked out. He thought I was puking blood. And um, I just remember being bedridden, hungover the next day. um, And just thinking like, this is it. I'm going to do that again. 
And um, growing up, my uh, my home was kind of violent. Um, my dad was pretty physically abusive. He used to like beat the crap out of us. And um, he would like lock me in the shed and uh, he would beat me with a metal pole. And um, my brothers were also very violent. Um, the police used to come to our house and so did uh, child services. And um, my mom would always like rehearse the lies that I had to say. It would start with like, I would get have a bruise down the side of my face and I would be told that, you know, my mom would hold an ice pack to it and say like, okay, tomorrow you go to school, you say that you got hit by a ball at soccer practice. And, you know, I was told that if I didn't say these things, then I wouldn't get to have all the nice rich kid things that I had. I wouldn't get to ride horses anymore. I wouldn't have a TV in a foster home, you know, like my parents gave me everything and this is what I had to do to maintain it. And, um, after, uh, my middle brother got arrested the second time, it was for assault. And, um, you know, there was never violence in my home again after that because his name was in the newspaper, the police had come, everybody in the town knew. And, um, so I started getting kicked out of the house. Um, if I did, did something that people didn't like, if I said the wrong thing. And um, I actually kind of liked that because, you know, I would go off with my troublemaking friends. I got to do whatever I wanted. And eventually I started spending more and more time away from home. I would run away from home. I was right like down the street from downtown Boston. And um, it wasn't hard to get what I wanted. Um, I could get alcohol and, you know, I did everything else too, but, um, we'll talk about alcohol today and I loved drinking. I drank in high school, in school. I drank after school. I would do things that I thought adults did. Like I would go home from school and I would like draw a bath and I would like make like a cocktail for myself and just like lay in there for like two hours getting drunk by myself. And, um, I guess other people my age were doing homework. Um, and, uh, but you know, given, um, the people who raised me, like everyone in my family drank and, um, I, uh, I always grew up being told that like I was better than other people. Like we were better than other people. I think that was because my town was like super liberal and my family were Republicans. So we were always different. And, you know, I, um, I carried that with me. And when I would be flunking a class, um, I'd somehow get away with it. I remember my mother found pictures of my chemistry teacher at her bachelorette party. And suddenly I passed chemistry. I still actually don't know anything about chemistry. And, you know, I, um, I'm gay, right? I came out to my parents. It was actually very anticlimactic because they told me the problem wasn't that I was gay. It was that I was belligerently drunk and I was 16 years old. And, um, I, uh, also my, uh, godparents, my godfather is gay. Um, so I grew up very Catholic and it wasn't ever an issue because, um, it was set a precedent before me. Um, cause I don't know why God would make me gay and make me a gay godfather was a problem. And, um, as I got older, I would find more and more ways to get into trouble. And I, uh, I moved in with a girl in college who, she was a party girl. She would like, she, uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this, but she was a, a Jersey chaser, I think is the term. 
So we used to throw these big parties and these professional athletes would come to our house. And I never knew who any of them really were because as I've mentioned, that wasn't a big fandom of mine. But I, uh, I was definitely in over my head. And I started experimenting with other substances. And when I was 19, I uh, got an offer from a friend who her boyfriend was living on this island and we supposedly had jobs there. So I got on a boat with her and I went to go live on this island and it was a commune. And um, ultimately it turned out to be a cult and I couldn't leave. And um, they did a lot of drugs there. They were drinking a lot there. Um, there was some sexual stuff that I wasn't comfortable with. And eventually I like was able to sneak off on a boat. I arranged for a ride to pick me up on the mainland. And I said I was just going to the mainland for the day. Um, to like get some like pharmacy items. And really I like jumped in this car and was like, drive. And um, I carried that with me too. Like I then thought that I was so traumatized that I needed to drink more. You know, I started drinking in the mornings when I was 19 and um, I didn't stop. Like I was a morning drinker at that point. I went to my first detox when I was 19 and that was where I went to my first AA meeting. And, um, you know, I, I also self-harmed a lot. And so I wound up in this detox and I was so mad because I didn't know why I was there because they were telling me that I had a drinking problem. And I was like, no, like I just have like a cutting problem. Like I don't see the problem here. And they were like, well, you were wasted throwing up in a bucket when you showed up in the ER. So like you're here in this detox. And they took us to AA meetings. And of course, I'm in like the little hospital gown getting shuffled in my grippy socks down to the cafeteria to go to an AA meeting. And they asked if I would read the traditions. And I kind of read it and I saw the word God a lot. And I was like, you know, I just got out of a cult. So I was like, I don't know if I really like agree with what you guys are selling here. Um, I prefer somebody else read this. And I mean, these were people who had gone into this institution to bring the meeting. And I was in that institution in a hospital gown. And I thought that I was too good to be at the meeting. And I still remember um, the woman who told her story that night. And uh, she talked about, she was a waitress and she would drink wine in the morning in the bathroom, hiding from her husband. And I just thought that was disgusting. Like, why would someone drink wine in the morning? Um, because I drank vodka in the morning. And I thought that that was what you did. Um, or I'd have, like, beer for breakfast, which I thought was fine, because they both started with B. And, um, you know, after that also was told in this institution that I was an alcoholic. And I thought, well, that makes sense. I drink all the time. And so I thought that I needed alcohol. I think that for me, my disease created this illusion in my head that alcohol was the medicine for me. It made me more social. It made me funnier. It made me more confident. And, you know, I had been a neurotic kid. I, um, you know, would like make my bed every day. And if one of my brothers jumped on it, I'd freak out. And um, I would spend hours in the bathroom getting ready in the morning. And I just had to be perfect all the time. And when I drank, it was suddenly like I was everybody else. And I made friends that way. And, you know, I never had an issue when I was younger because like I wouldn't get bullied or anything like that because I was selling drugs and everybody liked me. And, um, I, uh, I went to college. I like moonlighted as an art student. I would work odd jobs. Um, 
there was a phase where I, I worked for like a custom spray tanning company and I would like serve champagne while these girls would get um, spray tans for their bridal showers and weddings. And um, I would drink the champagne, of course. And um, I somehow scraped by, but the last year of my drinking, I did the same thing every single day. I would wake up, I had a little Yorkie um, that I carried around in a purse, and I would take him for a walk, and I would stop at a Starbucks that was nearby, and I'd get coffee, and then I would stop at the liquor store, which was on the way back to my apartment, and then I would try to make it till noon without drinking. My alarm clock went off at 11 a.m., and so that was very challenging for me to get by that one hour. And um, it was the same thing. I would pass out around 1 or 2 p.m. Um, I would wake up again at 5. I would start drinking again. I would go to sleep at 1 or 2 a.m., and then I would wake up at 11 the next day. And every day there was a bigger mess than the day before, and I would spend half the morning trying to clean up. Um, you know, like I said, I was an art student, so there would be all these red stains everywhere, and I didn't know if they were paint or if they were wine or if they were blood, and I would just be scrubbing and cleaning and trying to stop making a mess, but every day I would get wasted and make another one. And um, that was also just the wreckage of my life. Um, I was hurting people and I didn't know. And um, I also was using everything I had to my own advantage to get more alcohol. I was spending other people's money. I was stealing money. I didn't really understand that stealing was wrong. And that's something that I've had to work on a lot since getting sober. And no one in my life trusted me anymore. I thought that they were all just like hating on me. Um, and I couldn't accept that like I wasn't supposed to like vomit in someone's shoes and then talk to them the next day like we were still friends. And um, eventually I, uh, I went to a treatment center, like a, um, a full stay rehab, which I, I got kind of bamboozled into it. Um, my mother had called like one of those like hotlines. If you Google like what to do with my drunk son, that pops up a number and she called it. And um, then I got a phone call and it was a place in Palm Springs and they were saying they were going to fly me out. And I was like, why? And they were like, well, we just heard you've been drinking a lot and you need some help. And I was like, Palm Springs. I was like, do you guys have a pool? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, but do you guys have like a gym too? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, I looked outside. It was Boston. It was blizzarding. There was snow everywhere. And I was like, heck yeah, I'm coming. And um, I got on an airplane and flew across the country. Um, the day that I went to rehab, um, a friend of mine, she, uh, uh, she overdosed and died. And I luckily wasn't with her that day. But I, um, I got a chance she didn't get when I went to rehab. And, um, you know, I, for all intensive purposes, thought I was going to a spa. Um, my last drink was at the airport on the way to rehab. Um, and then at the layover on the way to rehab, I had two double Bloody Marys. And I remember staring at this and being like, I really hope this isn't my last drink because this is kind of gross. But it was like 7 a.m. I didn't know what else was appropriate to drink um, in public at an airport. And I um, went to treatment and, you know, it wasn't a spa. It was a recovery program based in the 12 steps. And 
I thought I would just kind of give it my all. I kind of hoped to get like a little bit of recovery and then I could just return to my life in Boston with like a fresh face. And um, I think uh, I love the ship system we have. I would say I'm a, a one white ship wonder, but I really only ever got like a white NA key tag. And then I think that was like the last NA meeting I went to for a couple of years because I started going to AA more. But, you know, I would pick up these chips and they were kind of like what I was like living for at the time. Like you'd give me this little medallion and tell me I did a good job. And um, my rehab had like a level system. So like if you got off the detox meds, you could go to the gym. And so then it was like you could be a level four and go bowling on Fridays if you got a sponsor. And so I got a sponsor while I was in treatment. Um, they took us to an LGBT meeting once a week on Wednesday nights. And I was like, I'm going to get one of these suckers to be my sponsor. Because like any good alcoholic, I knew how to use my defects to my advantage. And, you know, this guy, he had on like a dress shirt, like he'd just come after work. And he had just picked up a year at that meeting and raised his hand to sponsor. And I was like, he's going to be it. And, um, you know, I asked him, I made sure that the, um, the technician from the rehab heard that I'd asked this man. And... You know, he showed up the next day at the treatment center with a 12 and 12 for me, and we started working the steps. And he told me that I needed to read the first 165 pages of the big book um, by the next time that I saw him, which was two <laughs> days later. Um, and I stayed up all night reading that book. And, uh, you know, the first 165 pages, I, I was reading it, and I was like, yeah, yeah, like, this is all true. Like, this sounds like alcoholism, this disease we've been talking about in rehab. Like, tell me something I don't know. And, but I was told to, uh, highlight things that I related to and underline words I didn't know. Um, so that's what I did. I like actively read this book and, um, this guy picked me up. We went to a meeting and, uh, you know, then he was wearing a t-shirt and he was like super buff. And I was like, oh shit, I picked a guy that was kind of hot. And he had a sports car and I was like, maybe this sober thing is kind of cool. Um, still not sure it's for me though. I kept telling everybody in rehab that I was going to drink as soon as I left. And I didn't want to go to sober living. It just sounded awful. Um, <laughs> I didn't like having a roommate <laughs> and I wanted to go back to my life. Um, and I, I didn't know where my little dog was. I like thought the rehab's life was awful. Um, and there was a woman that had her little dog with her at rehab and I was pissed because I wanted mine. And so my mother told me that, um, if I went to Arkansas to stay with her sister and got some fresh air in the country that I could have my little dog back and that he'd be there waiting for me. And so I went to Arkansas and I got to the, the airport in Palm Springs. And I think to this day that it was a higher power that I didn't stop at that bar and drink because that had been the plan. But once I knew I was going to Arkansas, I was like, well, like, I mean, it's going to suck if I only have a day when I show up there. Like right now I have like 35 and I just want to keep that. Like I clung to these days I was collecting. And um, I had been told that the way that we get time and sobriety is by stacking days one day at a time. So I, I got to Arkansas and, you know, my aunt is a, a lovely woman. Um, she said that I was an evil baby monster. I was stuck in a dry county and I just feel like any self-respecting gay man from a northern city I tried to kill myself and I ended up in a psych ward in, um, Searcy, Arkansas. And it was a bad place. Like 
it was a like a people banging their heads on the wall and um, screaming and threatening to murder everyone kind of place. And, you know, this had happened when I was in the detox and it also happened in the rehab is I would get like a nurse who would come up to me while I was eating and she'd be like, you know, you're just so cute. Like, what are you doing here? And I'd be like, I don't know either. Like, get me out of here. <laughs> um, but inevitably I would say something that warranted me being there. Like also get these bugs out from under my skin. And then she would be like, okay, I see why you're here. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was really my rock bottom and I was already sober, but I realized that even though I was sober, I didn't know how to live. The idea of being sober was so terrifying to me and so foreign to me because I started drinking really, really young. And, um, so I knew in that moment that I had a problem. And, um, while I was in rehab, my, uh, godfather, who I mentioned before, offered for me to come live in Atlanta. And, um, he said I could come live with him and it was, uh, on one condition. And so for a living, my godfather was a gay pornography producer. And, um, it was like they shot in a city, in a house that was south of the city, but for one week every month, they used the guest bedroom in his house and that was going to be my room. So I had to sleep on an air mattress in the basement for that week. Um, so I had a bedroom three weeks out of the month and, um, you know, I would hear a lot of stuff going on in the upstairs. And so like, you could just imagine me like reading the big book at the breakfast nook in the kitchen while like people are, you know, having sex upstairs and there's a lot of moaning and a camera crew. <laughs> um, and you know, like I was told, um, early on that I should avoid emotional entanglements for my first year. And I don't know exactly what that means even to this day. Right. But, um, I, uh, I knew that in my situation that it was time that I started like focusing on me. Um, and I shut everything else out and I focused on this program because everyone in my life had been telling me what a fuck up I was. You know, my parents were saying like, John, you're out of control. You're having a problem. And they sent me to rehab and blocked my number. And then, you know, all my friends were like, John, you're crazier than us. And then, you know, I'd had a boyfriend when I went to rehab and, you know, he didn't think I could get sober. Um, he was also cheating on me and, um, I just ghosted him and went to treatment and I left all these people behind. But when I came in the rooms, I wasn't hearing from people, uh, like, Oh, that guy is going to make it. I, I actually was told once in a meeting and when I was doing 90 meetings in 90 days, which I suggest that uh, a man looked at me and he was like, you know, you're just so young. And like, as a young gay man, you're just going to miss out on so many exciting things if you decide to stay sober. And I just thought like, yeah, but, um, I also heard some old timers telling their stories and I was like, well, these stories are fucking lame. Um, cause I did a lot of bad things in a short period of time. Um, so I buckled down. I was told by a sponsor to read the big book cover to cover. And like I said before, I read those first 165 pages and I didn't really relate. Um, it had a section on to wives and to the family afterwards. And my family had blocked my number and I wasn't going to get married to a woman anytime soon. But I read in these stories, I started to hear voices that I related to. And I noticed that there was this sort of like story arc. And that was that 
you know, they hit this rock bottom and then they get sober and then they get a sponsor and then they're doing AA and then they ended up with like fellowship right at the end. And then they're of service. And so I saw these things happening in each story and I was like, okay, like I've hit rock bottom and I have a sponsor and I was like, I guess now I have to do these other things too. And I did 90 meetings in 90 days. I started working the steps. I, it wasn't hard for me to admit that I was powerless over alcohol. Um, I thought that alcohol was magical and it was all powerful. It was my higher power at the time. And, um, you know, I started doing things that I didn't really want to do. Like I started going to mass on Sundays and I'm not a good Catholic, but I just went anyway. And, um, I was going to meetings and I actually kind of hated AA and I hated AA meetings, but you know, this was a place that I came and people were telling me, keep coming back. You know, they would say like, just stay sober for today. And, um, I saw people picking up chips and I was picking up chips and I was like, okay, at least I can keep going back here. Like everybody else is saying like, John, get out. You're awful. And this place is saying, keep coming. All right. That's an incredible story. It's like half the time my jaw is on the floor. You went through so many things. Is there anything, I mean, having sort of laid all this story out, is there anything you want to recap about how you got from there to here? Um, or should we just pick up and go from? The only thing that I'll, um, I'll correct you on is it wasn't my A, a group that I told that story. About. Okay. It was a group I'd never been to before with about uh, 40 to 50 people in the room. Um, I only knew a handful of them because they were my friends that I dragged with me to support me. Okay. And so I do often have to tell my story in front of like total strangers. Like mm -hmm. this past Monday, I told my story in Clarkston, Georgia. Okay. Where uh, is that? It's like right outside of Decatur. Okay. Um, it's OTP. So this was like a, this was a big journey for me to go out there and tell my story. For those not in the know, OTP is outside the perimeter. And if you live in Atlanta, OTP is sort of like the burbs. Yes. Yeah. And ITP is inside the perimeter or in town Atlanta. Yeah. Right? So you were OTP. I was OTP. Telling yeah. your story. It's totally different vibe. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times, because I have told my story a lot, I will get like asked by different members of uh, groups that I do go to who will drag me out to their other groups they go to mm -hmm. to speak for them. What is the purpose in telling the story? Um, well, the way it's laid out is it's what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Mm -hmm. um, so even you referencing, like we'll play the clip until I get to Atlanta, that's the, what it was like. Right. And what happened. Right. Once I moved here and I was sober and I was going to meetings and working the steps, like that's what it's like now. Uh-huh. And, um, and the point is to give my experience, strength, and hope to anyone who's trying to get sober or is new um, to 12-step programs or AA. Hope. Experience, strength, and hope. Experience, strength, and hope. I love that. Oh, that's what stories are about, right? Yeah. Yeah. All in. Yeah. All in. So let's talk about the now. Okay. Um, you just got your seven-year chip on February 11, but your date is February 9, 2016. Yes. Yeah. yeah February 9, 2016. Um, that is when I got on a plane from Boston and went to rehab in California. Mm -hmm. What does the chip mean? I look at it like a reward system. Mm -hmm. um, when I was newly sober, 
you know, you pick up what's called a white chip, um, and that means it's your surrender chip. Um, some people have like handfuls, buckets of them because they keep trying and trying and showing up to meetings um, after relapses. And the joke is that like some people can tile the floor with their white chips. Um, oh goodness, yeah. I actually uh, never even got a white chip because um, the first 12-step meeting I went to was an NA meeting, which is not Products Anonymous, and they give out a key tag. Okay. Um, so I have a white key tag, but after that I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and but you pick up after 30 days, you get a 30-day chip, then you get a 60-day chip, a 90-day chip, six months, nine months. Um, so you mark each of these little milestones of time. And uh, when I was new, I looked at it like, I'm going to get all those chips. I'm going to collect them all. Uh-huh. Watch me. Yeah, watch me. Yeah. Um, Which is so true to your personality. Just like a basic yeah. reward system. Watch me do this. Yeah, that's probably how I ended up working with dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I just needed that validation of that little token that I could hold on to to prove uh-huh. that I was doing this. Will you tell a story about a woman who received her one-year chip who then gave it to you? There's a tradition in the community of giving that chip away. Yeah, Um before I had picked up my first year chip, there was a woman in the meeting, um, and I, I saw her in the meeting because she obviously, you know, she was someone your eyes would be drawn to. She had this like really short Cleopatra, like black bob of hair, and uh, she had a bunch of she had, like sleeve tattoos and she had a face tattoo, but she was like very well put together, and. So when she picked up her her year chip, she gave a little speech. She um, introduced herself as a junkie, uh, which I loved. Um, And she looked at me and said, do you have a year? And I I was sitting there like horrified because I'd only been sober for like six months and just shook my head no. And then she gave me her chip. Um, And I still have that chip. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would just go to meetings when I was new uh, to Atlanta, new to sobriety. And a lot of people were telling me how young I was, how it was hard to stay sober as a gay man, especially a young gay man. Um, I was told, you know, like maybe I hadn't hit my rock bottom yet. Um, And this was all coming from a lot of people who didn't even know anything about me. They just would take a look at me. Make an assumption. Yeah, and they, you know, this cute gay kid was too young to be here. Yeah. And um, so for me, it really took that one person believing in me. Mm. Um, Because there's such an emphasis in AA about like believing in a higher power and believing in God. And um, for to just find someone who believed in me when I didn't believe in myself at all. Yeah. What a gift she gave you. What about... Um, I also like to say, like, that would be the lady who would give me her chip. Right, of so, course. Yeah. The Cleopatra hair, yeah. tatted up, like, <laughs> junkie. She's like Kat Von D. Or... <laughs> I bet she's cool as shit. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about higher power, right? So I know you grew up Catholic. Yes. And now you go to Mass sometimes or pretty regularly just to recenter where do you, you know, what do you do with it covid i've really become one of those christmas easter people uh-huh. so i always go on christmas and easter because those are holy days of obligation mm-hmm. um and then the rest of the year it's like i go sporadically uh but for the first uh five years of my sobriety i was going every sunday mm-hmm. and um why 
You know, I knew in AA that I needed to have a connection with the higher power and it was part of the steps to be praying and meditating and to be practicing some type of belief or faith. Uh, it doesn't have to be religious in any way, but, you know, growing up, I was Catholic and I always had really good memories of being Catholic uh-huh. um, because my home life was so uh, wild and volatile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like mass was somewhere that we couldn't get into fistfights. Okay. And so it was always really calm. And my mom even used to say that that was her meditation because we would all have to sit down and shut up for an hour. And I just really took that. And I remembered her saying that. And I just thought like, you know, it's just one hour once a week. And I started going to a big cathedral in Buckhead. um, And I would go to the 7.15 p.m. mass on Sundays. And I went there and I actually saw... uh, I would say some of my my people, like there was a this Italian guy with a bunch of tattoos sitting over by himself. And then um, there was this this like older woman who she had this huge like back tattoo and um, she would wear like really strappy dresses to mass. And she, uh, I remember hearing somebody compliment this tattoo she had and she was just so like light and breezy about it. Like, oh yeah, like check out like <laughs> this ink during mass and um, <laughs> And, you know, people were just kind of sitting by themselves. It was kind of that quiet vibe. And I have such, like, wonderful memories of, like, these, like, long summer days where the sun would be setting while I was there, like, shining through the stained glass windows. Uh And just the solitude of that. And, you know, it was a 7.15 p.m., so, like, it was kind of empty, and I'd have my own pew, and... <laughs> the hand holding and the handshaking weren't really necessary when there's so much space between you and other people. <laughs> I feel that. I, feel that. <laughs> I love that. I love the visual of that. I mean, that speaks to your artistic talent that you see all of that in there. But I want to know, you know, where we left the story in the recording was sort of a break with your family for a time. But the you that I know is pretty close to your parents. So what happened? Well, I had been living in Atlanta for about a year when my mom came to visit. She was helping me move out of my godfather's into an apartment. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even schedule off work that weekend. I knew that she would be here. I knew that my Godfather was helping and I didn't actually have furniture yet so it wasn't like there was a whole lot of moving going on yeah. and so I you know would go to work that weekend and I'd like take a couple hours to see her in the evening or we went to like Bed Bath & Beyond and Ikea one day and I just immediately had these like walls up and these boundaries set that like I had to be at work I'm going to take a couple hours out of the day to spend time with you and um I guess I was really focused on just taking care of myself and like getting my own living space prepared. And I didn't make her visit about reconnecting. As far as I knew at that point, I was still the black sheep and a little bit uh, estranged. Mm -hmm. And we just did little things. Like I remember she took me out to dinner with my godfather and then 
two of my new friends here in Atlanta. Um, one of whom was a girl I worked with and one was a sober friend. And I just like slowly let her into my life a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. And um, she came back a couple weeks after that and flew my cat down who had been living with my brother while I was in treatment and then living in Atlanta in the first couple months. Is this Missy? Missy, yeah, this is Missy. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk about Missy. Yeah, she's still alive, still kicking, has been through just as much as me. (laughs) (laughs) Missy is a strong personality. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) What about your dad? Like, I I know that you shared a story about your dad coming down for a visit after he had some trouble himself. Yeah. um, So I had been, I had seen my dad once uh, because my parents had flown down because my godfather got a master's and they came for his graduation. Mm -hmm. So when my dad had come to town that one time, um, it was over a weekend and I, I called his uh, niece who lived outside of the city at the time. And I was like, my dad is coming. I need you to come to town bring your teenage kids. Like we are going to mass. We are going to dinner and I need the backup right now. Yeah. I don't want me to be the focus. And you know, she did that and we had like a great time. We went up to dinner and, uh, that was the last time I saw him for maybe like a year. Mm -hmm. And, um, he was in Boston, um, crossing the street when, a car, uh, he was in a crosswalk and a car almost hit him. And I guess him and the driver got into like some screaming argument, but my dad walked off and then this man like pulled a ways down the street, I guess turned around and then like jumped my dad out of an alley um, and just like beat the crap out of him. And he ended up in the hospital. And it was something where like growing up, my dad was you know, always stronger than me. My older brothers were always stronger than me. And I finally was able to just see my dad as what he really was now. And that was this like nerdy old professor in his sixties. And so to like, see this like big, bad, like ogre villain from my childhood, Mm -hmm. um, like taken down by like a complete stranger. It just wasn't what I wanted. Um, and I was really, really hurt by it. I felt really defenseless. Um, But I think I finally had the clarity to see um, him for just who he was. And uh, I think it was about a year after that, coming up on like the year to the day when he had been attacked. And I was talking to my mom and she said that he had seemed kind of like down or depressed and really she just seemed more annoyed than anything because she was still having to work at the time (laughs) her semester wasn't over she was still teaching and um so I said I was like well send him here to visit me and it was one of those things I said and then maybe like immediately regretted um never done that yeah (laughs) (laughs) and um but I knew that uh if I was going to you know, like allow him back into my life and to be a part of my life, like this was the chance. And he, cause I I realized he wasn't the same man that I knew from my childhood. Right. I mean, at this point I had been living in 
Atlanta away from Boston for three years. Um, so there was that amount of time and then there was all the time before that that I hadn't been living at home and had been living on my own in Boston. And so he came here um, and I let him stay at my place. But I say that because I was not staying at my place. I was actually dog-sitting Apollo. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I was here. <laughs> you were at my place. Yeah, I was at dad... my place, yeah. Okay. So this was like, he didn't have to pay for a hotel because I was staying at your house. <laughs> I did not know this. This is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, he was only here for, I think, two full days. Uh-huh. And I just like um, packed it with stuff to do. <laughs> um, he came to the gym with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got to meet like my trainer and the other guys I work out with. And he um, came out to dinner with me and one of my first friends I made here in Atlanta. Um, and her son is my godson. Yeah. And so we all went out to dinner, um, her and her son, and then also her mother. And I think the... The second day he was here, we went to go see the live action version of The Lion King. Okay. And which, you know, out of the movies that were available to see. Why that? It was kind of just like the only one. Uh-huh. It was, there was a few others that I think there was some political trauma. <laughs> and yeah. um, there was probably like some like really violent horror movie that I wanted to watch, but my dad wasn't going for yeah, it. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, the Lion King just seemed like a good, like a good medium. Like it's a story we knew. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had like totally forgotten that it has this whole father son messaging going on that entire movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> through the whole movie. The, through the whole movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> Mufasa dies and comes back from the stars. And during this movie, my dad leaned over and was like, John, don't ever forget that I'm your father. Oh, man. Yeah. And, you know, it was just like perfect timing. Mm-hmm. And I think after the movie was over, you know, I had to drive him back to my place and I was like, just like speeding down the road because I had to go walk Apollo. Oh my God. <laughs> and so I think, it, and it was, it was good though because it's like, because I was working here. I had to, I had time afterwards to process everything. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I have gone back to Boston since. Um, my brothers are still a little crazy and uh, my dad's been there for me every time. Yeah, he shows up for you. Yeah. He does. Um, and so does your mom in many ways. And my mom does too, yeah. Yeah. Her and I, I have really a, do. I'm a lot more like her. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some push pull there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of like personality clashing. Um, mm-hmm. because we we do a lot of the same things. I remember one time my mom came to visit and she took me to H and M. It was her idea to go. I remember this. Yeah. And, it was, yeah. and she kept pulling things off the racks, like saying, like, try this on, John. You need this. And I'd be like, why don't you get anything for yourself? And she was like, no, like, let's just go shopping for you. It's on me. Um, she's like, I don't have room in my suitcase. We get in the car and she starts crying that I had a spending problem. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> me, me and my attitude. Yeah. Um, 
This is where I say I'm somewhat like your daughter with the attitude. Uh, a little bit. We're sitting, you and Mackenzie give <laughs> each other what for. And I looked at my mom yeah. and I said, Mom, I didn't spend any money. Because she had bought me all these clothes. Yeah. And she just burst into tears. And I was like, why are you crying? And, you know, after I said that, then she got a little worse. But I, I backed yeah. off because I, I knew I'd done something. Uh-huh. And I was talking to... Um, the, the guy I was sponsoring in AA at the time. And I was complaining about, oh, my mom was being crazy. She just started to cry, um, telling me that I had a spending problem and I didn't ask for any of these gifts. And he just starts laughing at me. And my sponsee says, John, you and your mom are just alike. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he goes, you love to get angry and blame people for the same things that you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) And it just hit home and I was like, wow. I think I've done that exact thing. Yeah. Well, you talk about um, as a result of being sober. Yeah. Now I've heard you say, I get to feel my feelings. Yes. And I also see a lot of your relationships in the AA community where there's just an honest reflection back to one another. There's a real honest give and take. And I'll tell you, there are many times in my life that if I need a straight answer, you're the person I call because I know that it's not going to be sugar-coated. It's going to be straight up. It's going to be delivered with compassion, but also like the real deal, just like your sponsee delivered it to you. Yeah. So what is it about, I don't know if it's sobriety or the program or having lived real life really hard and coming through on the other side of that. Yeah. That makes it possible to deliver straight truth. I think if I'm looking specifically um, at AA and really any 12-step room where there are just so many people from different walks of life Mm -hmm. that the only thing we can give each other is the truth because we don't have the same experiences aside from our addiction and our alcoholism. But, um, you know, the sponsee I just mentioned, he was a, a contractor and would build houses and He's the fellow that got shot. Yeah, and he, he had been shot three times. Yeah. And, you know, we, on the surface, didn't have anything in common. Um, and, you know, I sponsored him, and he became a really close friend. And we have a lot in common yeah. in other areas of life, like music and movies. And But because we don't come from the same upbringing and the same, I guess, like... I mean, he's straight. He's he doesn't come from a really privileged upbringing with education and affluence in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. So we're not from the same tribe, and all. I mean, if he's he doesn't know how to sugarcoat it for me. Yeah, and I don't know how to sugarcoat it for him. I don't know how to tell people that come from completely different backgrounds than me what they want to hear. Well, you don't tell people what they want to hear necessarily. And I that's something that's that. just now from that experience uh-huh. carried over into all areas of my life because I've learned that when I tell people what they want to hear, 
that's my own pride and ego telling me that I know what they want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Even the people who I, friends I grew up with, who have, you know, parallel lives to me, um, I don't know what they need or what they want to hear. I don't know what's going to help them. I, I am working on actually trying to, to sugarcoat things a little bit. Why? <laughs> Why? Because I just, lately I felt maybe a little, um, like I, if I'm too blunt all the time, you know, there's some people that never asked for my opinion at all. <laughs> and, um, but I, I've also always really struggled, I think, even before recovery with, there is just like a direct link between my brain and my mouth. Um, and it's gotten me into trouble my whole life. And now as an adult, I just, I know who and when and where I can just let that out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that this podcast is one of those places. <laughs> I think it is. This is the whole point is to have like legit conversations. And I knew you wouldn't bring me on here if it wasn't. I would. That's the whole point. Like we should, I, and I, I say this half the time you and I will be chatting and I'm thinking we should have recorded that. There's so much stuff here, right? There's so much good stuff in what you have to say and your approach to life. So, you know, there's got to be a part two because we do lighten it up in a bonus episode. But today, this story, John's story, I felt was such an important story to share. Irrespective of whether you're seeking substance recovery or just seeking emotional recovery through some dark days, because we all have them, dark days. I felt it was an important story to share and one of resilience and compassion for oneself and um, kindness and forgiveness and just so many beautiful things. But here are the takeaways. You ready? Number one, the point of John sharing his story in AA is to give experience, strength, and hope to anyone who is trying to become and stay sober. In the same way, in any context, by having the courage to share our stories, we give experience, strength, and hope to others. Number two, make no assumptions about the depth of someone's life experiences based on age or appearance. Number three, John says, it really took that one person believing in me when I didn't believe in myself at all. The takeaway, believe in others and show them that you do. Some of the greatest turning points in my life have been through the still small act of a friend showing that they believe in me, that they see something in me even, or especially, in the tough days. Number four, when mending family trauma, go slowly. Stay in self-preservation while slowly sharing glimpses or highlights of your life, slowly. Number five, related note, when you need backup, when you need a buffer in a tricky emotional situation, call on friends or family to provide that for you. Ask for it bluntly, explain what's up and what you need. 
find the people who show up for that, no questions asked, and keep them in your life. All right, these next few are quotes directly from John that are so pure, so true, each is worth sitting with for a moment. Number six, it was time that I started forgiving me. Number seven, your home group is where you are of service. So I would ask, where are you of service? There, you'll find your home. Number eight, I get to feel my feelings. Whew, y'all, I've struggled with this one. I'm gonna repeat it. I get to feel my feelings. Number nine, when we come at life from different places, different experiences, different backgrounds, different tribes, the only thing we can give each other is the truth. Number 10, when I tell people what they want to hear, that's my own pride and ego telling me that I actually know what they want to hear. Number 11, there's a direct link between my brain and my mouth, and it's gotten me in trouble my whole life. These days, it's about knowing who and when and where I can just let that out. Number 12, when healing, when in a life transition, avoid emotional entanglements. And number 13, when creating a new way of being in this world, begin stacking days, one day at a time. John, how much do you love that we ended at number 13? (laughs) Okay, podcast friends, thank you for listening. Maybe you know someone who is in recovery or considering recovery, or maybe you know someone who is healing childhood trauma and seeking a path forward with their family. Share this with them, please, because the healing really is in the sharing. I'm sending you so much love, so much joy, so much strength for today and the days ahead. Laugh freely and love hard. I'll talk with you real soon. 